Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Habakkuk. And I imagine that you might have a little difficulty finding Habakkuk. That's the, it's one of the, what we call minor prophets, not because it's less important, but because it's a shorter prophet in the Old Testament. And if you have your own Bible, that's towards the end of the Old Testament. If you go to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, right before Matthew, and you just work five books back, it's the fifth book to the end of the Old Testament. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews in front of you, which I'd encourage you to do if you don't have a Bible, to follow along with me. You can find Malachi on page 540, I'm sorry, Habakkuk on page 549. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're starting this new series. As I've mentioned, we just ended Ephesians. It's going to take us probably about three or four weeks to work our way through Habakkuk, and then we're going to be in the Psalms for the balance of the summer. As Reynold mentioned last week, I will be away on a sabbatical for July just to recharge my soul and and go home and visit uh, my, my parents in my native country of California. And uh, so we're going to be away for five weeks in July. And then when I get back, we're going uh, to very likely start a gospel in the fall. So, uh, but today we find ourselves in Habakkuk. And as you're opening to Habakkuk, um, this is the first. When I was a, a senior in high school, just a few weeks after I had come to faith in Christ, at this little church that my parents still attend right outside of our hometown there in El Centro, California. Um, the pastor, I think, was just delighted that some young kid kind of started coming around and coming to faith. And so on a Wednesday night, he had me come up and just give a little testimony. And Habakkuk was one of the first verses, at the end of Habakkuk, that beautiful passage at the end of Habakkuk about how we will rejoice in the Lord even though fig trees don't blossom. Um, I, I had read, read that earlier, and so I got up to speak and just shared that, and uh, probably pretty much out of context, but I remember pronouncing the word Habakkuk. I had never really heard it before, so I pronounced it Habakkuk, <laughs> and um, that, it kind of went downhill from there. Um, and speaking of mispronunciation, um, it has come to my attention that... Uh, well, let me just tell you kind of what happened this week. Monday morning at our staff meeting, we have a regular staff morning on Monday mornings, and a young Mr. Robert Ward, who recently was promoted to assistant pastor here, apparently was sort of feeling his oats. And um, usually I kind of lead this meeting, but we started the meeting, and Robert closes the door with all of the staff there, and he says, Brad, um, there's something that uh, myself and the rest of the staff would like to talk to you about. Uh, evidently, well, last week we were talking about Scott and Gina Caro and their little boy that they just adopted from a particular city in the northern part of the United States in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, one of the major cities, not Pittsburgh. And evidently, I have been pronouncing for my entire life, 41 years now, I've been pronouncing this word Philadelphia. Um, and evidently I've been saying that a lot. I said it about 17 times yesterday, and it was apparently making some of you, like, shriek in horror that I could have graduated from high school. And so uh, I, uh, I realize now that it is pronounced Philadelphia with an E, and I am sufficiently chastened and humbled. <laughs> and a bit, a bit gun-shy, actually. So um, with that... <laughs> With that, let's, um, let's look at Habakkuk. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through the first 11 verses. But before we just sort of parachute into a relatively neglected book in the Old Testament, uh, I think we need to do a little bit of, of background to sort of catch us up with, um, with where we are in the biblical storyline. Okay, so... So let me just kind of, with very broad strokes, just summarize sort of the Old Testament as, as quickly as I can to kind of catch you up with where we are. So you know that everything begins in Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve, and so the storyline of Genesis is God creating and then dealing with people in their sin. Of course, we know that Adam and Eve very quickly fall in the garden, and things begin to go kind of downhill from Genesis 3 on. 
And so then uh, God uh, begins to deal with one particular man several generations, hundreds of years later after Adam by the name of Abram, who he calls to make the father of his people, of many nations. And he calls this pagan man Abram and later calls him Abraham, who's just wandering out in the desert. And through this one man, Abraham, he calls him to himself. And amongst all the peoples of the earth, he, he begins to work specifically with Abraham and his descendants. And so the rest of the balance of Genesis, Genesis 11 and 12, where he, where he initiates his call on Abraham's life, through the rest of Genesis is then the dealing of God with this man and his family and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and then Joseph, we see at the end of the Old Testament. And so we see God working with his people. We see them uh, going through periods of rebellion and coming back to him. And we see God working through then Jacob and his sons, and in particular, Joseph. And the book of Genesis ends with this great famine, and Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, and now he's in a position of authority and leadership in Egypt, where he's been sold into slavery. And now, because of severe famine in the land, this family, Abraham's descendants, Jacob, his grandson, now find themselves having to flee to Egypt where their brother that they sold into slavery is in a position of authority to receive them and bless them. And of course, Genesis ends with that beautiful verse where Joseph says to his brothers, which has become such a, a beautiful verse for many of us in our lives, what you intended for evil, God has turned around for good, for the saving of many lives. And so Genesis ends with this family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob then in Egypt and so God's people are in this land where they really shouldn't be but yet God provides for them through Joseph and several generations pass and eventually what was uh, sort of a, a good partnership for food turns into slavery and God's people are in slavery in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus and they find themselves um, working uh, under the thumb of a tyrant, Pharaoh. And God raises up a deliverer, Moses, who delivers his people from the bondage of Egypt. And we see probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible where God delivers his people from bondage in Egypt, not because Israel was powerful, not because Israel had any particular might in them, but because God loves his people and has chosen them as his own possession he raises up Moses to deliver them through the Red Sea and then causes the waters to fall on Pharaoh's army. And then they wander in the desert. So now we're in Exodus and we're in uh, this time when God, now after he has saved his people, now gives them his law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and the law. And that's what we read in the second half of Exodus and Leviticus. We read about God's law. So he saved his people. Now he's giving them his word and his command. He's not just saving them, but he's forming them to be his people. And so now the Old Testament is in this, mo in this time in the redemptive storyline where God's people are now wandering in the desert. They've been saved. They've received his law but they're not yet back into the promised land that God had given them. And so they wander in the desert, and eventually Moses dies, but God raises up another leader, a young man named Joshua. And Joshua finally leads God's people back into the promised land, across the Jordan River. And in a smaller context, God recreates the salvation again. He parts the waters of the Jordan River again so that they can walk across it and get back into the promised land. And that's the book of Joshua is all about. They've returned to the promised land. They're in this place that God promised to Abraham generations before, but still there's a lot of work to be done because there's all these foreign people there that they need to drive out because God, it's not because God doesn't love all peoples, but because God is particularly concerned with the holiness of his people whom he is working through to display his glory to all people. And so the people are back in the promised land and Joshua is leading them through this and eventually Joshua dies and then there's this time of judges where God's people are led by these judges and it's a particularly wicked time. It's a particularly sinful time in the history of Israel. And if you read the book of Judges, it's, it's a scary tale, really, of how wicked God's people can be. And there will be these cycles of righteousness where God will raise up one particular judge to lead people sort of back to faithfulness. But then it ends very quickly again into rebellion. And by the end of Judges, we see just a complete mess. And we see the people demanding a king because God's 
rule and reign is not enough for them, so they want to be like the other nations, so they demand a king, and God says, okay, I'll give you a king, and, and he gives them Saul. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of First and Second Samuel and in the time of kings, and God raises up Saul. And that doesn't go well at all, and Saul proves to be a complete failure. And then God raises up this young shepherd boy, David, who becomes this, in many ways, very successful king, but yet in many ways very flawed king. And David has a son named Solomon who then also has many great qualities but many flaws. And Solomon, after his death, his sons begin to take over and the kingdom divides. And so, so where we are on the redemptive sort of storyline of the Old Testament is God has saved his people from Egypt, brought them through the desert, into the promised land. Judges have not quite done the job. Kings have not quite done the job. Even great David hasn't quite succeeded. Solomon in all his wisdom and glory has not succeeded. And now there's this time of kings and the, there's a sort of split in the kingdom where, where now God's people are divided by the northern tribes, which we know of as Israel, and the southern tribes, which are, which are Judah. And so the kingdom is divided. And that's what First and Second Kings is all about, this period of wicked kings coming to power, sometimes doing good things, but mostly it's just more and more wickedness. So God's people are in the land, but they're being led very poorly, and wickedness and sin is rampant. And finally, after generations and generations of king, kings, God gives his people over to captivity, first to the Assyrians, and then to the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians that we'll read about today. And then finally, the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And then we find there at the end of the Old Testament, God's people being ruled by these Persians. And that's the time of Daniel, and then the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and the time of Nehemiah, when finally one of these kings that's in charge of God's people, one of these pagan kings, is merciful to God's people and allows them to go back and rebuild the temple. So now God's people are in exile. They've been kicked out of the land again. And, and that's basically where the Old Testament ends. And eventually, which is not recorded in the Bible, the Persians fall to the Romans. And when we pick up again in Matthew, we see God's people under the thumb of another foreign power, the Roman Empire. And so where are we in Habakkuk? We're in this time of kings who are, some of them are, 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 are glimmers of hope, but most of them are wicked. And so we see this time at the end of the time of the kings, right before God's people are taken captive by this foreign power, the Babylonians. They're sort of almost under the thumb of the Assyrians to some degree who are harassing them, but now there's this other power that is rising sort of towards the, the east, the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans as they're referred to here, who now Habakkuk is going to prophesy about them coming to power to punish God's people. So that's where we find ourselves in the redemptive storyline. So let's read in Habakkuk. And why, why would we read an Old Testament prophet? What is, a, what is a man that lived 2,600 years ago prophesying and speaking very specifically to God's people in a very specific context, have to do with us. Well, here's why I love Habakkuk, and here's why I think we need to listen to this message. Habakkuk doesn't end. We're going to, as you'll see, it presents us with dilemmas. One dilemma in particular that we heard sung so beautifully by the guys from Psalm 13 about, God, are you there? Are you listening to me? Look around my life. Look around this world. Things do not seem to be like they should be. God, are you there? And Habakkuk, and one of the reasons I love the Bible and I love Habakkuk is because it very honestly wrestles with that problem. We don't, we don't tidy up Habakkuk, put it in a little box and package it and sell it as a Bible study and everything kind of everything ends well. This is a very difficult truth. This is the type of stuff that I think puts steel in the spine of uh, very thin, uh, wimpy American Christians like me who need to hear raw, gritty honesty from the scriptures. So let me read. This is going to be broken down kind of into two plaints. Habakkuk's prayer and complaint in the first four verses, and then we'll look at God's rather unexpected answer in verses 5 through 11. First, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. 
Father, as we come to your word now, we thank you for the fact that you have made your people alive in Christ, that you have given us new hearts so that we can believe in you, and you've given us ears so that we can hear you. And Lord, you've given us this prophet, Habakkuk. Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3, and he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us. Lord, there are, there are very important truths for us to learn from Habakkuk in our day. So Lord, would you give us wisdom Would you give us humility? Would you give us a sort of perseverance and tenacity to dig into this beautiful Old Testament prophet and hear your words for us today? Father, for the Christians in this room that are wrestling with that very same sentiment, how long, O Lord, would you give comfort and perspective and strength to your children? And for people that are in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, those that have not yet turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone for their right standing with you, God, would you be so kind as to give the gift of new life, to give a new heart? Would you even cause this study of a, of a relatively obscure Old Testament book, would you cause it to bring life, spiritual life, to people who are walking in darkness and death? I pray these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Before we look at specifically about some things that I think we can learn from Habakkuk's prayer, let's kind of... Let me just sort of summarize what I think is going on here with Habakkuk. Habakkuk is, in a sense, praying and really very honestly complaining to God about the unrighteousness that he sees within the people of God, specifically within his his southern kingdom of Judah. So, So the unrighteousness, the wickedness that he is sort of lamenting and complaining to God about is not the wickedness of some foreign people or some foreign army or the Babylonians or, or, or the Chaldeans as they're referred to here, but he is specifically lamenting the unrighteousness, the wickedness of God's people. And so he is, he is in a sense complaining God, he knows the law of God, he knows the purposes of God to work through this people, to be a light to all nations, and he knows that the righteousness and the holiness of God's people is, is of supreme importance. And he knows that in a way, God's reputation is on the line. And so he is, I think very honestly, crying out to God, God, what are you doing here? Certainly there was a faithful remnant of people within, within Judah at that time. And certainly Habakkuk was part of that faithful remnant. But now he is crying out saying, God, look, your, your law is paralyzed. Nobody's caring. Justice is, is, is never going forth. And, and all of the wicked people within your people seem to be overtaking and surrounding those of us that are trying to live for you. So I think that there are a few things that we can learn from Habakkuk's complaint. The first is, is that he's honest with God. Habakkuk is honest with God. He he doesn't let the situation push him away from God, but he actually allows it to push him towards God. I started to think about just kind of in our life, and I think this has just been true since God created mankind. Just our reaction to injustice and brokenness, I think, can produce kind of one of three reactions. I think, and I think this is probably pretty dominant in America today, 
when we see injustice around us, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Habakkuk for just a second. And when we see injustice around us and when maybe we see a sort of moral fabric of our country sort of crumbling, I think we sometimes react three different ways. One is just kind of cynicism. You know, just kind of a general cynicism, like, ah, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. It's just sort of, you know, kind of giving into the spirit of the age. I think also what we are particularly prone to, if it's not cynicism, is just sort of an avoidance. We just kind of, we just sort of try and buffer our soul from the reality of the way things really are in our world or maybe even in our own lives by, by medicating our lives with stuff. Maybe because we're, maybe because we're middle to upper class, middle, upper middle class Americans, most of us, we, we just kind of buy stuff. We, we lose ourselves in entertainment. We just kind of give ourselves to just, just sort of recreation. And of course, those things in and of themselves are not bad, but when, when we sort of use them to sort of drum out reality, we're sort of doing the spiritual ostrich, you know, method. We're just sort of trying to stick our head in the sand. And I don't actually know if, do ostriches actually stick their head in the sand? I've always kind of wondered that, but you know what I'm saying. I think we all grew up at least thinking that they might do that, and whether they do it or not, don't let the facts get in the way of a, of a good analogy. <laughs> and, and, but you see that? So, so we just either kind of check out and we're cynical, or we avoid it, or like Habakkuk does, we can kind of engage reality and be passionate about it and be very honest with God. Just a question here. How, how do you and I respond to injustice and brokenness in our lives and around us? We just kind of given in to, you know, America's not the way it was when I grew up. We just sort of given in that the man is going to keep me down or have we just given in that the you know, I'm not going to get promoted in the army because some spotlight clown is, you know, always the one out in front of me. And am I just kind of giving in to the fact that, you know, this is just my lot in life or this is just the way things are in our city or in our country or in our church or in my family. And, and we're just going to kind of medicate our soul with, with, with a little bit of cynicism and a little bit of avoidance and just sort of get through these 80 years that God gives us. Lord willing, with our salvation intact. I think that's sort of the default mode for most of us. But Habakkuk chastens us because he's, he's brutally honest. I mean, he is going to the God of the universe, complaining, questioning whether God is even involved in this. And that brings us to the second thing that I think we can learn from Habakkuk's First is that he's honest with God. Second, that he, I mean, he cares. I mean, we have to commend him for this. He cares deeply about his people in God's name. I mean, at least he cares, right? He, he, he's going to God. He's, he's witnessed, he, I think probably, most commentators say that Habakkuk was a, probably a temple prophet during the time of the boy king Josiah. So this would have been a couple decades before where we find ourselves right now with Habakkuk when things are just terrible. And Josiah was this boy king that we read about in Kings who actually came to the throne when he was eight years old. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine? Right now there's some eight-year-olds in the hallway in Crosspoint. The eight-year-olds would probably be in the kid church room right now and they'd probably be in what the the second or third grade can you imagine an eight-year-old being the president of the united states i think that would be a sort of mix of spectacularness and a really scary situation so josiah comes to the throne as an eight-year-old god gets a hold of his heart sometime during his teen years and josiah actually starts to reform the nation and is one of the bright spots in kings and they find the book of the law in the temple that had just been accumulated with dust and buried under a bunch of stuff and they actually start to read God's law and revival breaks out and so Habakkuk is around probably when he was a younger man remembering this time when God's people were coming back to God and now we find ourselves a couple decades later when it's now gone from the height back down into one of the valleys and now in fact the Assyrian neighbors to the north who were harassing God's people Judah were they were the Judah, the Judah was allowing some of the objects of worship of Assyria to actually be in the temple. And so, so here's Habakkuk, this devout 
earnest religious man, remembering the revival of his past, seeing these objects of pagan worship just strewn all throughout the temple, and he's pulling his hair out, and he cares. He cares about his people because he cares about who they are, and most of all, he cares about God and his reputation. Friends, honestly, that's a whole lot more than I can say about what's on my heart half the time. So, So in that sense, I mean, Habakkuk should be commended. He cared. Made me think about it as I was reading this and just meditating on Habakkuk and what type of man he must have been. It made me think and really be sort of convicted about what I care most about. We live in a land where the dominant religion is SEC football. And we live in a place where, um, quite frankly, many of us will be more upset about losing to a rival or an NCAA judgment of probation on our team. Now, I'm not beating you guys up because you know that I grew up in Southern California and I'm a USC fan and I actually think that the penalty against USC for probation for the last couple years was a little severe. But doesn't, just think about the things that we're passionate about, right? Think about the things that really move us in comparison to the thing that moved Habakkuk. The future of his people, the holiness of his people, and most importantly, the reputation of God. And it brought him to this place where he was bold enough to sort of throw aside this sort of this reverent religious nature and go and complain to God and say, God, where are you? Which brings us to the third thing that I think we can lean, learn about Habakkuk's prayer and complaint is that At least he rightly viewed God as holy and able to make things right. Notice that. You have to read this closely. He he did have a high view of God's sovereignty, which I think is very important and very right. In verse 2, he says to God, he says, You will not hear. You will not save. He doesn't seem to hint at all that God is somehow powerless. Somehow he's not able to overcome the unrighteousness of his people because, again, Habakkuk would have grown up knowing the law of God, knowing the history of God's people, Israel, knowing how time after time God had rescued them out of very similar situations. And so he's not looking for a human solution to the problem. He's not trying, in a sense, to legislate morality. He's crying out to God because he knew that God was holy and he knew that this was just, just didn't jive with God's character and he knew that God was able, in fact, he was the only one who was able to make things right. And I think actually his high view of God actually kind of made the situation a little bit more perplexing to him. And isn't it kind of like that for us as Christians sometimes? Have you found that as you grow in Christ, as you grow in maturity, as you grow in your knowledge of the world, I'm sorry, as you grow in your knowledge of the word, that it's almost like the intensity of your relationship with God grows because you're, sometimes you're wondering what really? Like, God, I believe that you can do this. I mean, I really believe this, but it just seems so out of balance with what is actually going on. This brings us to the fourth thing I think we need to observe in Habakkuk's complaint. He was honest with God, he cared deeply about his people in God's name, and he rightly viewed God as holy and able to make things right. But the one thing he doesn't get right is that he wrongly views God as idle and not listening. He wrongly viewed God as idle and not listening. Verse 3, he says, I mean, can you imagine this? He says, why do you idly look at wrong? I mean, that takes some, some guts to pray that to God, to complain to say that to God. Let's now look at God's unexpected response in verses 5 through 11. So now remember, Habakkuk is complaining about the immorality within Judah, within God's people. He's complaining to God about that, basically saying, God, how long are you going to continue to let this go on? doesn't pray for a specific answer, but I think we can all surmise that probably what he's expecting is for God to say, you know, you're right, Habakkuk. 
I'm going to come and give you a righteous king who's going to lead a revival like I did back in the day of Josiah. Back, remember, when you were in your 20s. Remember that? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this. If you have enough prayer meetings, if you, if you organize enough people to come and, and, and plead, then I'm going to move again like I did in the past. So, so, so Habakkuk is sort of probably thinking that that's the way God should answer this prayer. But listen to what God says. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Sounds good, man. He's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So still going, yeah, this is going to be awesome. Another righteous king is going to come. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Maybe if you're reading an NIV Bible, it says the Babylonians. Same group of people who are these brutal enemies to the east who weren't quite yet powerful enough but who in a couple decades will be the power in the Middle East. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Listen now to the description of what God says about the people that he is raising up to punish his people for their righteousness. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now that's God speaking to Habakkuk about these people. And can you imagine Habakkuk is like, okay, God is speaking. He's about to answer me. He's going to tell me that I'm going to do something amazing. And then all of a sudden it takes a left turn and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to raise up these filthy, nasty, pagan Babylonians who are wicked and who scoff at kings and whose own might is their God. And I'm going to use these people, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, which is going to be next week, but I'm going to use these people who are actually more wicked than the wickedness within my people to punish my people for their wickedness. Gene, this morning when he kicked us off and read the call to worship, read from Psalm 135 where it says, Our God is in the heavens... And he does whatever he pleases. Friends, if if you don't have a category for the utter sovereignty of God in your theological landscape, one of the best ways you can serve your soul is to build that category in. It's not some sort of doctrinal position of a particular group of people that or on this camp of the church, it is just Bible. God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Now, we're going to read through this, and we're going to wrestle with that truth, and in a couple weeks, we're going we're to spend some time wrestling with that, and we're going to see also that God is good, and we're going to see that he does good for his people, and we're also going to see that God's timetable is not limited to just these 80 years. And so when God does good for his people, it doesn't always mean that our temporal situations get solved here in this life. And that also is a difficult truth for us to wrestle with. But we're going to see that there's this God who's in the heavens who does whatever he pleases. So let's look at a couple things that I think we can learn from the Lord's response very quickly and then we'll be done. The first thing that I think we can learn from God's response and friends, this is not rocket science. And part of the reasons why we preach through the Bible is, and, and I don't like, you know, we just get together, myself, Wayne, Robert, Will, we just talk about the scripture. We come up with these points ourselves. We're not, not buying them from some study. So listen, this is, this is not rocket science, 
right? This is just, this is just from reading the scripture over and over again. And, and that's this first, this first little point that I have here, I think is going to tell you just quite how simple it is. God is in control of the nations. God's in control of the nations. God says to Habakkuk, I am going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, to exact my punishment on my people. Now, this has not happened yet. God has not, he's not sort of jumping on the bandwagon of something that's already happening. And he's not getting on a train and just sort of redirecting its track and saying, okay, the Babylonians have kind of done their own thing, and so maybe I'm going to exercise my, sort of my power as a deity and, and kind of use them for my purposes to kind of nudge. No, no, they hadn't even begun to, this is a couple decades likely in the future, and God is saying, for my purposes, because I am this powerful, and because I control kings and nations and everything below, I am going to raise them up for my purposes. Will quoted it this morning when he was praying for us in the offering. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. In the New Testament, we read Paul's, le- Paul's speech at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, and it says, and he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. So that means before time began, God knew July 4th, 1776, or whenever America officially became a nation would happen, and he knows when America will cease to exist. He raises up the Babylonians for his specific purpose, and then he knows that later on the Persians are going to smash the Babylonians, and then he knows that later on the Romans are going to smash the Persians, and then he knows that later on this kingdom is going to fall. God is in control of the nations. And that means that he's in control of the United States of America. This means that our hope, listen to me well, friends, and I warned you a couple weeks ago, we're, we're ramping up into the political season, um, which gives me a little nervous tick. Because I think one of the things that we are particularly susceptible to is being primarily most of us being um, American Christians. Not all of you. Not all of you are Christians, and not all of you are Americans. I understand that. But most of us are middle-class American Christians who probably have a conservative bent politically. I include myself in that camp. And as a result, we are all particularly vulnerable to confusing justification by conservatism or salvation by American morality. And that's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the gospel. I'm not saying it's not the way that we should be politically active, but we are all, most of us, are particularly vulnerable to finding our hope in some political ideology. Friends, this means if God is in control of the nations, this means that our hope does not lie in political parties or American exceptionalism or the strength of our military. And by the way, just for the record, I am for all of those, okay? I think we should be active in the political process. I think we should vote. I think we should vote as many times as they will let us. And if you live in some states, evidently I hear that happens. I think that America is an exceptional nation and that God has intended for the rise of America for the bringing about of his purposes, but that's it. The culmination of history is not the American experiment. America fits somewhere in God's plan for the display of his glory and the joy of his people whom he is saving. And believe me, friends, I spent the first, I mean, I spent college years and five years in the army. I love the military. I love big guns that blow stuff up, man. I love it. I love the flag. I love the smell of 
tank and Bradley grease and oil. I love it. I love that little smell of an M16 when you're on the range. And you just smell it. Man, I love it. I love guys graduating from ranger school. I love rangers and seals and delta dudes and people that eat nails for breakfast so that you and I can sleep at night. I love that stuff. But friends, listen to me and listen to me well. That is not where our hope is is because there's coming a day when even something as strong as the American military machine will be made like dust, the coming of the Lord. God is in control of the nations. He controlled Babylon. He controls Persia. He controlled Rome. He controls America. He controls Iran. He controls North Korea. He controls He controls Venezuela. He controls Afghanistan. He controls every terrorist network. He controls. Romans 13.1 says that there is no authority that has been instituted that was not instituted by God. So that means, friends, that Barack Obama is the president of the United States according to God's will. And if Barack Obama is reelected, it will be because God instituted him. Yes, using the means of voting and using the means of people praying or not praying. And it also means that if Mitt Romney is elected president of the United States, it will be because God instituted him as an authority. And friends, that does not release us from responsibility to pray and labor and politic and campaign or do whatever God may be calling us to do. But friends, all of that rests under the banner of God's utter sovereignty because he is in control of the nations. And if he's in control of the nations, this brings me to my second thought. And friends, this again is not rocket science. You do not need to graduate at the top of your class from Columbus High School to get this. If he's in control of the nations, he's in control of our very lives. I mean, think, I mean, again, this is not rocket science, friends. I, I, this is not high level. Just if you, okay. If somebody can bench, I'm talking about exercises in the gym, right? You know the bench is where you lay down on a bench and you have this bar and you, you push weight off your chest. If you can bench 300 pounds, you can probably bench five pounds, right? And and so if God can exert his sovereign will over the affairs of nations and kings, and if he can move the complex political machines of nations according to the way that he deems fit for the bringing about of his purpose, then certainly he can handle my little life. Do you see this? If God's in control of the nations, he's in control of my life. But here's the deal. Here, here, let's whittle it down now because I don't think many of us would disagree with that. Most of us don't question whether or not he is powerful enough to do this. Friends, most of us wonder whether or not he's interested enough to do this. It's not a question of God's power and ability and authority. I think probably... I mean, you guys get that. Look where the real issue gets. And this is where Habakkuk is in chapter 1. God, are you there? Do you see what I'm going through? Are you listening? Were you, were you there when that happened 10 years ago? Were you there? Friends, the answer to that question of whether or not he's interested, I think Scripture answers clearly. David writes in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. The future is not unknown. To us it is, but not to God. Jesus writes in, Jesus says, Matthew, the gospel writer, writes in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. This is one of those verses that you should memorize. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Is God capable of governing our lives? 
Yeah. Is God interested in governing our lives? Yes. Now here's the dilemma. Here's the dilemma of Habakkuk. And friends, I'm pretty much done, and I'm not going to try and put a little tidy bow on the end of this passage of Habakkuk. We're going to spend a couple more weeks in it. Here's the dilemma of this passage. God, you're able. Okay, now we have the benefit of another 2,600 years of redemptive history. We have the benefit to look back on Habakkuk's situation, and we have the benefit of the New Testament. We have the benefit of the cross. We have the benefit of looking and seeing fully and finally where God has once and for all dealt with injustice by dying on the cross for us. We have the benefit, but friends, we still have to wrestle in this age with injustice and brokenness and our own sin that we battle with. And so the dilemma is for Habakkuk and now for us, God, are you interested? The answer to that is yes. And we see that most prominently on the cross about 600 years after where we are where God comes in the form of his son Jesus to live a perfect life to be the holy and righteous one to lay down that life on the cross to take on his shoulders all injustice, all wickedness, all pain, all sin sins that we have committed, sins that have been committed against us and to atone for them, to absorb God's wrath for them, and then to die, be buried in a tomb, and then three days later to rise again in victory over that sin and death. And now he commands all people everywhere to turn and trust from trusting in ourselves, trusting in our own temporal views of justice, trusting in our own righteousness, and trust in God. But what we'll, because what we'll read next week is that the righteous, those whom God has saved, live by faith in God's plan. Live by faith in God's way. Live by faith in God's justice, which is most fully and prominently seen on the cross. You may ask, why are we still dealing with it? Well, friends, those are questions that Someday we will ask God, why are we still dealing? If God has finally and fully dealt with sin on the cross, why am I still struggling with it? Friends, those things are left to the wise counsel of God. And I think the answer to that is so that he might display his glory, that he might display himself as more satisfying than anything else in this world. God, are you listening? Maybe the question on our heart this morning. Yes. Yes. And he has proved his ear is open by his work on the cross. Christian, be encouraged. Be encouraged that these 40 or 50 remaining years are under the sovereign, redemptive work of Jesus. Unbeliever, Have you trusted in the sovereign God who alone, who alone can make things right? The way you do that is not by trusting sort of in some vague notion of his power, but by trusting once and for all in what he has done to deal with sin and injustice on the cross. When you do that, you turn away from trusting in yourself. You you turn away from your own sin. You, You turn away from our limited views of what justice should be and we put faith in God who finally and fully makes everything right in Jesus. Do that even now. Turn away from trust. Let the brokenness of your situation not push you away from God but let it cause you to come towards him and look to the only one who can and has made things right by his work on the cross. Well, let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to these words, Lord, I know that there are people in this room who are wrestling with 
brokenness and injustice. And they are wondering where you are. And Lord, you have given us prophets like Habakkuk. You have given us this object lesson in the Old Testament of Israel as a picture of your perseverance, of your grace, of your power, of your long-suffering. God, this morning as we wrestle with these things, would you very gently turn our hearts away from brokenness and injustice and sin, whether it's inside of us or outside of us or a combination of both. And would you fix our eyes on your power, on your sovereignty, and on your goodness fully and finally in Christ on the cross to atone for, to make things right. But we have the benefit of the cross that Habakkuk didn't have. But all of this is pointing towards Jesus. So God, would you, would you cause our gaze to lift from our circumstance, lift from injustice, lift from our trial, and would you cause it to gaze at Jesus, the resurrected King. And Lord, then would we appropriately place every situation in our life underneath, underneath the power of the cross. Lord, for people in this room who've never yet trusted in Jesus, would you give them a new heart? I'm not asking that they would muster some strength. I'm not asking that they would make some emotional decision or repeat some phrase. Lord, would you bring them to life by the power of your gospel? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, cause them to be born again and give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they can turn away from trusting in themselves and they can turn and trust to you? God, would you do that even right now? And friend, if that's you, to become a Christian, you, you must look away from yourself and trust in Jesus. Do that even now. Look to Christ. Come to him in brutal honesty and say, God, I do not understand my life and everything that is in it right now, but I know that I cannot do this on my own. I cannot save myself. And so, Lord, would you save me? I trust in what Jesus has done alone for my right standing with you. Friend, do that even now. Cry out to him even now. Father, would you do these things? Would we now respond to you in honesty and earnestness in these coming few moments? In Jesus' name, amen.